Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, ready to navigate the rough seas of global politics. Today, we're ready to ruffle some feathers, too, with a conversation about woke corporations and cancel capitalism, where those movements started, and how to tell apart legitimate social purpose in the corporate world from gimmicks designed for profit only. We have a very provocative guest today, Vivek Ramaswamy, author of Woke Capitalism. And we're also lucky to have Peter and Dea, our own and founders of Immigrant Foods, to share their experiences in owning business with a purpose. Mooney, I've been in the corporate world for you know a lot of decades, and I've lived through the rise of terms like corporate social responsibility and ESG investing and sustainability and you know, all of them pointing to the fundamental questions of how businesses can do good for society, especially for the underserved parts of society. And, you know, as I think about why this has happened, I think it really is all about that these change in business practices over the past 25 years reflect a repeated failure of government and politics in the West. You know, I'll never forget a dinner with the daughter of a dearest friend of mine about 10 years ago. She just got her MBA from Darden, and she said that she wants to go into the business world to change the world. You know, that's not what you used to hear before. You, people wanted to go in, in government. And for her, government and public policy today were actually impediments to change, and that only businesses, she said, could really do honest and real change and real good. And so it wasn't a straight line for me, but that dinner eventually led me to create a social enterprise business that advocates for immigrants. Immigrants need help from the private sector because of the decades-long failure of government to fix the immigration problem in our country and to sort of create an immigration system that is fair and equitable and that will continue to sort of enrich the United States, both economically and culturally. And sure, I think there are companies that twist social and economic goals into propaganda for money, but our guest and I are going to disagree on this. I think this trend is fundamentally positive. Peter, the thing is that in a race to attract consumers, many companies around the world are embracing a cause and advertising aggressively about it patting themselves on the back and patting their bottom line. So there's a lot there that is opportunistic. And since it's well known that millennials and Gen Zs demand social impact, demand in their choice of employment and the products and the services they consume, companies have very quickly learned to cater to this market. And some of these quote unquote causes are openly contradictory. And some of them are even laughable, like soft drink companies, junk food companies as activists for healthy food supply oil companies pushing environmental issues, and more recently, Philip Morris, Philip Morris leading the anti-smoking campaign. Others started out based on social impact like Tom's Shoes, Patagonia, and of course, your own experience in immigrant food founded by both you and Tea. But look, immigrant food is, is a small enterprise startup and in this big world of capitalism with a cause. But you know, there are large companies, I, you, know, you mentioned a bunch of these that are, as you said, laughable. I think, you know, Philip Morris advocating for the end of tobacco is pretty laughable, but there are large companies that are dead serious about how their company can help change and impact the world in a better way. You know, if you take, for example, Denmark's Lego toy company, it's spent millions on repackaging, 
their ubiquitous little bricks and going carbon neutral. And Europe in general is way ahead of the trend uh, in the rest of the world. In this year's top rankings of the 100 most sustainable companies, 46 are in Europe, 33 in North America, 18 are in Asia. And here's a fun fact. Banco do Brasil is number three. And in the U.S., big brands like Nike and Ben and & Jerry, who were the pioneer activists standing on principle for what's good for society and also benefits their profits, that's what social entrepreneurship is all about, being able to create both profit and impact and to do what everyone can do to make up for these huge holes in policies that the government seems to just be permanently unable to fix. And I know this story is quite personal for Taya. So let's move to Taya's take. I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So this week, instead of delving deeper into what it is that millennials and Gen Zers care about when it comes to capitalism with this activist bend, I want to talk a little bit about a personal story. So there's a reason why my segment here at Altamar is about social justice. It's what I care about personally, and I fight for it professionally. So I used to work for a firm representing large asset managers, and many of my clients were so-called impact investors, running funds with a corporate social responsibility bend. But I realized that we need to do more. We live in a time where it's no longer okay to just turn a blind eye to injustice and expect it to, you know, quote-unquote, work itself out. So two years ago, Peter and I co-founded Immigrant Food, a restaurant startup that has a social cause embedded, or rather baked in, to use a culinary term, into its business model. And that was really important to us, that Immigrant Food would not just you know, take a part of its profits of, you know, at the bottom line and donate it to causes or espouse a cause once we made our first million dollars, but rather that from day one, from the very first day and even before we made our first sale, the cause of immigrant justice would be incorporated into the company. And we do that really in three main ways. One is we donate parts of our space to five local NGO impact partners. And these are amazing nonprofits that work in the trenches every day. They can use our upstairs mezzanine floor for volunteer classes or citizenship lessons or even board meetings. And second is we wanted our customers to be able to engage. A lot of my friends complain that they, you know, they don't recognize America anymore um, and that they want to find ways to do something. So we came up with this thing called an engagement menu. It's right next to our food menu. And every customer, once they come in for lunch or dinner, can choose or choose to ignore to donate, volunteer, or join immigration-related activities. And then lastly, we wanted to fight misinformation through education. Each month, we publish what we call the Think Table. It's our own monthly micro-digital publication that takes on one issue in immigration and goes in depth. As we all know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. It's propagated by extremists and repeated by ordinary folks. So what we do is we speak with experts from journalists such as star columnist Tom Friedman, members of Congress Pramila Jayapal, Andy Kim, and CEOs and founders like Resmo Shajani of Girls Who Code. So we publish a three to five minute video and create infographics that we publish on social media to directly counter this misinformation and cyberbullying really against immigrants. So we've come to a point where politics are so divisive and polarizing and social media has become a misinformation machine. Uh, while there are so many issues that from climate change to racial inequality to, yes, immigration reform that require action. 
So I strongly believe that it's up to the private sector to fill this vacuum. It's not through greenwashing and fake social justice campaigns, but through real activism and thoughtful education. So I'm really curious to hear what you think. Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let's debate. So let's add our guest, Vivek Ravaswamy, to this conversation. Vivek is a scientist and entrepreneur, Harvard and Yale grad and biotech investor and innovator, a first-generation American. Vivek has now become a familiar voice and writer on stakeholder capitalism, social activism, and free speech. And his provocative new book, Woke Inc., makes the case that politics has no place in business. So Vivek, welcome to Altamar. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me, guys. So in your new book, Woke Inc., you talk about the invisible force in our life as consumers, where companies and politicians pushing ideology and promising a better world ultimately will hurt everyone. Can you break down this theory? Yeah, sure. So I think that stakeholder capitalism, this new idea that businesses ought to be vehicles for advancing not just the pursuit of profit through the sale of products, but also to advance social values, inadvertently poses a threat to democracy. And the reason why is that it demands that a small group of investors and CEOs determine what's good for the rest of society rather than our democracy at large, where every person's voice and vote counts equally. And I have a particular problem with stakeholder capitalism when it's espoused by big business in particular. It's one thing if you're talking about small mom and shop businesses across the country running their business in ways that accord with their values and those of their customers and take social stands. That's a discussion we could have separately from that of when big business in our country has ultimately co-opted decision-making power in our culture that's best resolved through free speech and open debate on issues ranging from climate change to racial justice. And, and that's actually the biggest threat that I think stakeholder capitalism poses to democracy, though I have uh, certain other issues that I raise in the book that, that are in addition to the issue of concentrating the power to decide moral issues, which is the first one that I wanted to highlight. So Vivek, explain your theory on how big business and progressive politics are not a good mix, not just in the U.S., but in the rest of the world. What is that scam that you accuse woke corporations of? Yeah, so, so the scam is actually pretty simple. The, the way it works is as a business, and particularly in big business today, you pretend like you care about something other than profit and power precisely to gain more profit and power. And that new trend, I think, dupes the public into believing that businesses stand for something other than the pursuit of profit through the sale of their products, but actually sows a crisis of institutional mistrust when you realize that those businesses are actually lying to you. And so what happens is both in the United States and in other countries, consumers vest too much trust in these businesses that ultimately aren't actually great stewards of the social causes that they purport to advance. And so whether you're on the left or you're on the right, maybe for different reasons, you should find the new marriage of big business and, and the progressive left to be alarming because what it's allowed big business to do is to be able to deflect accountability for their business practices that they'd rather not be talking about. For example, if you're Coca-Cola, you'd rather be issuing statements about a new voting law in Georgia or teaching your employees how to be less white, that's their words, rather than actually talking about your own product's impact on the nationwide epidemic of diabetes and obesity. If you're Nike, you'd rather criticize slavery 250 years ago in the United States rather than reduce your reliance on slave labor today to make the products that you sell to kids in the United States. So, so this is a new game that what I call is crony capitalism 2.0, where businesses have ultimately been able to carry out more ruthless behaviors that deflect accountability from regulators, from governments, and from society at large, but by dressing it up in the veneer of progressivism, what I call blowing woke smoke, 
to cover up their actual practices. And, and I don't think that's a conservative issue or a liberal issue. I think that's an issue that for different reasons, I think conservatives and liberals ought to be equally worried about. So you've called wokeism and cancel culture both an opium for the masses. What should substitute it? Should companies just just worry about their bottom line and not even pretend to care about the community? Yeah, as I, as I sort of describe a fun story in the book where I was an intern at Goldman Sachs in the year 2006, and one of the things that I learned is that the people at the top of the food chain, the managing directors, would prominently wear these cheap rubber wrist strap stopwatch type watches to work rather than their Rolexes, which they would leave at home. And you know, I, I tell a long story involving a pseudo service day where they pretend to do service when in fact they they just go go drinking. You know, it's it's sort of a funny story that I tell at the outset of the book. But I, the way I conclude that chapter is by reflecting on the fact that America might just be better off if the bankers at Goldman Sachs just wore their Rolexes to work rather than pretending to care about diversity and pretending to plant trees. And I think that that's the essence of the American system is it actually works pretty well when the American people know what to expect. And I think the same is probably true for other liberal democracies around the world too, not just America. But there's a decoy. It's like the equivalent of, of tampering with the smoke detector on an airport lavatory the system doesn't work when it can't actually detect the ills that the mechanisms of accountability ultimately set in motion. And so, yes, to answer your question in short, I think society is best left off when businesses focus on making products and providing services to people who need them for the pursuit of profit, not just to protect their shareholders, as Milton Friedman might have surmised 50 years ago, but actually to protect the rest of democracy from corporate overreach. And I think that that's the, the main problem that I'm grappling with in the book. In addition to, I think, a darker turn that that trend has taken in recent years, which is the following. It is that when corporations become vehicles to advance a progressive agenda, they can become vehicles to advance any agenda. And this is something that foreign actors, including the Communist Party of China in recent years, has taken notice of and used to advance its own geopolitical agenda, just as the woke left in the United States has managed to do it over the last decade. You know, I, I, I love the way it sounds, but I always, you know, in listening to you, I just can't help wondering whether you're blaming the wrong person or the wrong group or the wrong entity. I mean, isn't all this involvement by new sectors of society in policy and advocacy all derived from one fundamental root, which is the failure of government and policymakers to actually fix things over the last, I don't know, quarter century in which we've had growing inequality, growing xenophobia, growing sort of issues having to do with racism, at least in this country and other countries we can mention other things. But, you know, the West has stagnated in terms of its ability to have its government fix things. So while I hear you that businesses shouldn't have a role, the fact that they've taken on this role to try to make sort of some things improved, and I agree that many are, many are fake and all for profit, but some aren't, whether it's on inequality or climate change or discrimination, I just wonder whether this isn't a problem that's misdirected and it needs to be directed at government because you say leave the voters to resolve things. Well, the voters have left things unresolved. The government has followed their lead now for about 25 years. Yeah, look, I think the functioning of our democracy is far from perfect. But I think the thing that we need to do is not abdicate that project, but to be able to roll up our sleeves and doing the hard work of fixing our civic polity, the civic sphere of our lives, our body politic, which I think suffers in ways that, that, that run very deep today. But I think that abdicating that project and deciding that capitalism should instead fix the kinds of problems that ought to be addressed through free speech and open debate in a democracy is, is, the, is decidedly a turn in the wrong direction. 
as I sort of wrote in the Wall Street Journal about a year ago, I think the right answer to the kinds of questions that you just laid out is not to force capitalism and democracy to share the same bed. Ironically, I think what we actually need is a clean divorce between the two, such that each one is prevented from infecting the other, as we see today. And, and look, I think that the right answer, I think, to resolve political questions is free speech and open debate. And I wonder what happens when corporations get involved. I see the increasing emergence of force as the mechanism that supplants free speech and open debate, the threat of being fired from your job if you don't adhere to a particular orthodoxy, the threat in schools of your kid getting a bad grade in school or at a university getting a grade that you don't like if you defect from the orthodoxy. And I think that that's not democracy. I think whether you're on the left or the right, one of the things that we ought to espouse as a common principle in a democracy is the way we settle our normative questions is in the public square through free speech, open dialogue, debate, not through the use of force. And I think the use of economic force is one form of force that's increasingly prevalent when we ultimately delegate that responsibility to our capitalist class rather than to our political leadership class. And it's not just the politically elected officials, it's every one of us in our capacity as citizens, which is different than acting in our capacity as consumers or as, as business executives. It's so interesting. I mean, wh where do you think this all began? I mean, people people talk about the uh, you know millennials as being the guys yeah. who have suddenly sort of you know consumed and with their wallets, their voting ideas, right? So they yeah they're now driving these corporations to do that. I mean, is that where it started? Well, I'll give you two accounts. One is the account of the modern marriage between big business and capitalism on a top-down way from the executives doing it. And then I think there's the deeper question about a millennial generation that I have some thoughts on as well. So, so on the top-down version of it, I think it began, or at least was supercharged in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, where after the 08 crisis, you had corporations in this country that were the bad guys. And what the old left wanted to do, or at least were viewed as the bad guys, what the old left wanted to do was to redistribute money from those wealthy corporations and give it to poor people for the benefit of poor people. Agree or not, that's what the old left had to say. But there was this new breed of a newly identity politics focused progressive left that said, actually, the real problem may not have been economic injustice or poverty. No, it was racial injustice and misogyny and bigotry. And that actually presented the opportunity of a generation for big business, for Wall Street, for banks in this country to say that actually Occupy Wall Street is a big threat to us. That's a tough pill to swallow. But the new woke stuff was actually pretty easy. You applaud diversity and inclusion, say the right things, put some token minorities on your boards muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change after you fly in a private jet to Davos. This is actually pretty easy. And they actually entered this voluntary arranged marriage where they say, we will use our market power to lend both money and legitimacy to this newly ascendant woke movement. And in return, we're going to do the kinds of things that the woke movement wants to see by, by saying the right things, which involves very little change in actual behavior. That was the arranged marriage that I think is more like mutual prostitution, which led to the illegitimate birth of the woke industrial complex in this country. Now, that's different from the demand-driven version of this, where actually you have an entire generation of consumers, millennials, people my age, who are hungry for purpose, hungry for a cause, hungry for a sense of meaning and identity that are left unfulfilled by the vacuum of faith, by the vacuum of patriotism in our country, by even the vacuum of hard work as an ideal. And I think what you have then is an entire generation that's hungry for a cause, but is sort of filling their moral hunger with the equivalent of fast food by mixing their morality with commercialism, by going to Ben and Jerry's and ordering a cup of ice cream with some morality on the side. And I don't think that that's the way virtue works. 
But the problem for a business is the problem with virtue signaling is at a certain point, signaling your virtue becomes more important than virtue itself. The problem with a hungry millennial, a morally hungry millennial, is that buying a shirt that signals your morality doesn't actually satisfy your moral hunger either. It just leaves you starving for more substantial fare. And so I think that that is the deeper cultural problem at the heart of our nation's soul. It's part of why I said earlier that wokeism is, I think, the opium for the American soul right now that fills that moral void. But the right work we need to do isn't to just cancel wokeism in return. It's to fill that moral void with something more meaningful. And, and at least by the end of the book, that's something that I set out to do. And it is certainly my focus going forward on the back of putting this book out is to really start a conversation about how we create that shared American identity that sh those shared set of values that bind us together, but also fill a moral hunger for a cause that an entire generation now feels left with a vacuum instead. So I think you did an interesting job about dividing demand-driven and supply-driven wokeism, right? So let, let me go back to supply-driven wokeism because, I mean, in some parts of the world, in Scandinavia, for example, they've embraced sustainability long before the 2008 financial crisis and before, you know, and do you see no legitimacy derived from companies acknowledging world problems and engaging in them? I mean, seeing no legitimacy is a very strong statement to make. I, I freak, I think about a majority of the cases in which I see companies doing it are in the scammy kind of woke capitalism where they will say whatever allows them to make an extra buck or accrete an extra unit of power. I think there's a minority of cases in which companies or their executives may mean what they say authentically. The surprising thing to me over the course of writing the book is that I initially set out to write an indictment of the first kind of woke capitalism, the scammy kind. I think by the end of the writing the book, I actually was surprisingly convinced that actually the more dangerous threat to democracy wasn't even the scammy kind. It was actually the authentic kind, where you have somebody who may exercise a surprising amount of market power but is using that market power to flex their muscle in the marketplace of ideas. When Twitter makes a decision about what content is and isn't eligible to be discussed on its site, when Facebook decides that on a certain day, you're going to be removed from the platform if you surmise that the, that the coronavirus pandemic may have originated in a lab in China, which, by the way, I think is increasingly the predominant theory for, for most parsimonious theory, certainly for how this pandemic originated six months ago. That would have gotten you censored on Facebook. I think that that is the inappropriate exercise of power in the marketplace of ideas derived from market power in the marketplace of products. And even if companies meant that authentically, I think that's actually the most dangerous kind of, most dangerous kind of power of all in that it allows actors like Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey to evade the constitutional checks and balances or term limits that come with being a democratically elected leader by being able to exercise quasi-monarchical power through the use of wielding power through their corporatocracy as an alternative that really, that really uh, sidesteps the mechanisms of democracy. So you go of after wokeism quite a bit. And also with um, cancel culture, you have an, an idea that this is leading to victimhood. So According to you, we know who you think the bad guys are. Who are the good guys? Well, I don't, I don't really divide the world into, into sort of bad guys and good guys. I, I, I sort of wonder and worry about whether there's shared principles that we're supposed to espouse as Americans. I think there is. And I worry about the betrayal of those principles, whoever's betraying those principles. And, and so, you know, cancel culture to me, I define, as I alluded to earlier, as the use of force to supplant free speech and open debate 
as the mechanism for settling moral questions. I see some of the biggest perpetrators of cancel culture coming from the newly progressive left that has an increasing intolerance for debate or dissent. However, I think cancel culture is increasingly also emerging in response to that left-wing version of cancel culture on the right that would seek to cancel the woke progressives in return or ban the ideologies that they want to that they want to push. Whereas I think the right answer isn't to copy or mimic the methods of intellectual terrorism to fight intellectual terrorism in a new way. But I think the difficult part about fighting terrorism is it might be easier to co-opt its methods in the short run, but in the long run, you just join the Church of the Terrorists under a new name. And I think that's true whether you're fighting jihadism in the 2000s or whether you're fighting woke intellectual terrorism in the 2020s. I think that you have to abide by the principles that define what you stand for in the first place. And And I, by the way, I feel the same about victimhood culture too. I'm very critical about victimhood culture in minority communities in the United States, in the woke left progressive communities in the United States. But I worry about the emergence of victimhood culture uh, amongst white Republicans, too. I think that that's increasingly the way this culture war may end is not with a bang, but with a whimper, where both sides accidentally join the same church under different names while still fighting and not knowing that that's actually what they were doing. So. Peter and I own Immigrant Food, which is a socially minded food startup. And we didn't transition into, you know, looking out for immigrants as a gimmick or wait until we make our first million bucks to take a part of our profits and donate it. I mean, we're really trying to embed these principles into the business model. So I want to put you on the spot. I mean, this is a socially minded company and this is what you criticize. And I would say we are um, we really believe in this. And um, what would you advise us as a skeptic of socially minded businesses? Well, I would say, uh, and I said this at the outset. So I have, I draw a big difference between small business and big business. Okay. So I think that the scammy kind of woke capitalism is bad, whether you're small or whether you're big, because it's fundamentally a form of fraud. It's a form of deception. It's a form of claiming to do one thing when in fact you're doing another, saying something that you don't mean. Whether you're big or small, there's an issue I have with that. Now, I I distinguish that from the authentic kind of stakeholder capitalism that I described earlier, which is when you have and wield substantial market power, market power that's so substantial that it allows you to sidestep open debate as the vehicle for settling political questions. I put Jack Dorsey on Twitter in that category. He doesn't need more bucks. He needs to expand the scope of what money itself can buy because he has enough dollars. That's not what's limiting his power. What's limiting his powers, what the scope of money itself can buy. So I think that if there comes a day in which you have created the behemoth of the 21st century in controlling the food supply chains that ultimately find their way to consumers, and you're using that to potentially starve people or not serve food to the people who ultimately disagree with or defect from your own ideology as it pertains to you know take an issue that may be close to your heart, immigration policy or whatever, I have a problem with that. I think that in the meantime, if you're a small business that ultimately is expressing and building a product for the pursuit of what you believe ought to be provided to consumers who ultimately want to buy food and and maybe have food, maybe that tastes a certain way in part because it represents a diverse range of immigrant flavors. I don't know. I don't know exactly how your restaurant operates, but I think that that there's a version of that that I am perfectly okay with that I don't have a problem with. So if you think about the axes of, of, Authentic or inauthentic? Inauthentic have problems with all kinds of all kinds of businesses that are inauthentic about it, small or large. On the people who are embodying their stakeholder capitalist values authentically, 
my biggest problem with it is really with companies that abuse disproportionate market power to silence dissent. Now, I don't think that my sense is that's not really the case with your with your startup business or your startup restaurant. Maybe there will be a day 20 years from now where, where it's big enough that we need to have that conversation again. But I think that the two issues are inextricably linked that make me uh, not at all concerned with. And, and in fact, you know, I, I, would, I may not be one of the people that applaud you for, for mixing, mixing up your social values with your business, but I may come to the business because I like the food. And, and, and uh, you know, hopefully, I can, hopefully I can visit you guys in D.C. one day and do just that. But I think that that's in a very different category than the way I talk about Jack Dorsey, for example. And the food's great, so you'll, yeah, and we'll we'll, we'll 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 take you out to lunch uh, at, at Immigrant Food. I want to go back to something you said about the end of your book, in which you talked about ways that we can move forward in the political yeah. discourse in the West. But let's talk about the United States in particular. I mean, at the moment, you know, you've talked about these two churches that may be whimpering together, but in the end, sort of the fundamental fact is that there's no common ground. Whether they whether they bark or whimper, it doesn't matter. There's just common ground, no space for consensus, just seems to be the predominant direction of the day. How do you see the resolution of this? Yeah, well, look, I think that uh, part of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is that I worry about the natural path to resolution versus what I think ought to be the path to resolution, which, you know, is going to take some effort on all of our parts as citizens. And so I think the natural resolution could actually be the creation of, of two economies where you have one economy that's defined by one set of social values and frustrated, you know, today it's probably conservatives in response are going to say, we're going to create an alt version. So Starbucks goes progressive. Guess what? We now have black rifle coffee. I worry. Major League Baseball goes progressive. We may have a version of alt baseball. And I think once we have two economies, that may be the beginning of the end of the American experiment as we know it. Because in a divided polity like ours, we require apolitical spaces and spheres to bring us together, irrespective of whether we're black or white, irrespective of whether we're Democrat or Republican. The baseball stadiums, the football stadiums of this country used to provide that. I worry they don't anymore, or at least are at risk of not providing that anymore. And so I think the right answer has to be to revive a shared sense of what it means to be American. I think we lack a good answer to the question of what it means to be American in the year 2021. You know what? One of the areas where we, I don't know your view for sure, but where we might agree is that I think immigrants may actually be at the forefront of driving that conversation because they come here and vote with their feet because they want to be in this country. They made a personal choice to be here, often at great sacrifice, not simply inheriting that country. And I speak as a first generation American myself in a belief that I actually think immigrants and, and the children of them who ultimately make a choice and don't take the country for granted may be among those who are best positioned to begin to answer the question of what it does mean to be American. America isn't just a place. It is a vision of what a place can be. And the people who buy into that vision have to believe in that vision. So I think that's actually the hard work that we need to do. I think there's some policy solutions that can help get us there. I think free speech and open debate and our free speech culture is an important part of what allows us to rediscover those ideals by talking about them in the open. One of the things I talk about in the book is making political speech and political belief a protected class like race, gender, sexual orientation, religion. Uh, you know, those are the kinds of policy solutions that I think aid and create the conditions for rediscovering our shared identity. But I think ultimately that's the hard work that we're going to need to do as a people. 
last question quickly. We're running out of time. So you think that as corporations and politics need to run on parallel tracks, consumers and voters should kind of be the same entity and try to create the civic discourse that you're talking about, right? No, I actually think that uh, this is where I leave off in the book, you know, is, is I think we have to rediscover the pluralism of identities within each of us. To me, American pluralism is about more than just creating a visible tableau of diversity of people who look different and then celebrating that. I think it's actually about rediscovering the plurality of identities within each of us. I'm not just a man of color or whatever. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm uh, I have a tennis player. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a scientist. I'm many of those things. But I also, and each of us is not just a consumer, but a citizen too. And I think actually segregating those identities within each of us, understanding that when I'm a CEO, I might be providing a product for the pursuit of profit, but I'm also at once a citizen that in my capacity as a citizen cares deeply about the civic and political issues that we face and challenges we face as a country. Being able to segregate those identities within us, that pluralism of identities within us, I think rediscovering that pluralism within both in each of us as individuals and in the institutions that comprise America as a country is really where this where, where, where the beginning of the answer lies in rediscovering our shared Americanism. Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you for joining us on Altamar. It was a great discussion. Thank you. Mooney, I love the guy. He's so convincing. And the problem is that sort of, you know, every word and every sentence he says convinces me. But if I think of the whole thing then I'm just generally, I feel like the, he, I feel like the, he ignores the past. Like corporations have been influencing politics forever. I mean, if you think of Rockefeller, if you think of all the steel magnets, if you think of, of Henry Ford, think of all the money that's poured every year into lobbying in order to influence policy. Now, just suddenly, suddenly for the first time, you're just hearing about it and corporations are going public with it. But it's not as if he has discovered fire. I mean, corporations have been influencing politics and policy forever. And this is now suddenly they're just doing it more in public. Uh, I think the difference, of course, they've been influencing politics forever and ever all over the world. But the difference is now they're trying to influence the way people feel and not necessarily just how people think and trying by, you know, advocating for all of these uh, causes. Um, they are not only walking into the world of politics, but on the worlds of, you know, human identity and, and the way we, we think when we're at home. So I think that's the overstepping that he's talking about. But I think that more than influencing how people should think, I think they are reflecting what people already think. I mean, if you think of immigrant food, you know, uh, three out of four Americans believes immigration is a good thing for this country. We are immigrant food is a platform that provides an opportunity for people to actually engage on that issue. So. I don't think it's influencing. I think a lot of it is responding to what people, democracy already believes. I think he was pretty clear that that was a legitimate, a legitimate issue. All right, guys, we've run out of time. Thank you very much for listening to us. And you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. Mm -hmm.